0: Welcome to another episode in this stunning series on the work, life and theories of Clayton Christensen. We're in for a real treat today. But before we start into today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor Next Estate, a Berlin based expert in property investments, management, and acquisitions in the Berlin market in Germany, specializing for English speaking investors, from all over the world. You can find them at next-estate.de or next-estate.com. In 2003, media companies and newspapers were in free fall, where American newspapers earned only a small percentage of revenue from digital. The Deseret and the Deseret Digital Media were the envy of others with more than 50% of the organization's combined net income coming from digital sources. And all this a little more than three years after a former Harvard Business School professor took over the company. How did he do it? Well, he developed a strategy thanks to his work with both Joe Bauer, our recent guest on the show, and the focus of this series, Clayton Christensen, and employed this research to recalibrate the way Deseret is organized and does business. Today, he has recalibrated his own life and reallocated his own resources to causes other than the business world, bigger causes. More about that shortly. But first and foremost, he is with us to pay tribute to his friend, share how those theories he discussed and formed with Clay helped him perform a spectacular turnaround in the media industry, and share his insights from his book, Dual Transformation co authored with friend of the show and future guest on this series, Scott D Anthony, and of course, Mark Johnson, co founder of InnoCite. And just a little tip to the future of this show what's coming down the line, a series on all the work of Joe Bauer, and our guest co authored a brilliant book with Joe Bauer that we're going to cover in the future from resource allocation to strategy. It is an immense pleasure and a privilege and an honour to welcome to the show, Clark Gilbert.
1: Well, thank you, Aiden. I'm so glad to be with you. And what a, what a wonderful opportunity for me, not only to talk about these ideas, but the man and the character of Clay Christensen uh, and how he imp- impacted not only my intellectual development, but my personal, spiritual, and moral development uh, just because of who he was.
0: And you guys had an immense working relationship and personal relationship and spiritual relationship as well. And I thought I'd set the tone Clark and let you take it away from an excerpt that you wrote in an op-ed in an airplane seat that you confided in me when you heard that your great friend had passed away and you wrote this in the Deseret news, I'll quote a little part here and then please take it away. First, there was the heart attack, then cancer then the stroke. When Clay Christensen initially started facing these health challenges, he wrote to me and said, what a blessing it was, because now I can talk to my students about what really matters. And no one can get mad at me for speaking about God and spiritual purpose because I'm dying.
1: I thought that would be a great place to start. Thank you. Yeah, I still remember that it came to me in an email. And it was just an observation clay made. He he wanted people to think about the most fundamental parts of their life. And and that lecture that he gave, um, you know, it, it became the graduation day lecture, later became the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And, um, you know, you mentioned the work that had been done at the Harvard Business School around resource allocation theory. You know, the father of that work had been Joe Bauer. Clay Christensen picked that up and used it to identify the innovator's dilemma. But for me, his most lasting insight was the way we allocate resources, not just financial, but time and attention based resources. That's what shapes our ultimate strategy. So if you want to know an organization strategy, Clay would say, don't look at what they say their strategy is. Look at how they allocate their time and attention. What are the priorities? And in those daily, every everyday common decisions lie the very essence of the strategy of an organization. And he used that to help, you know, Intel get out of, uh, you know, its high-end microprocessors into the Celeron chip. And he used it to discover the innovator's dilemma. But he said, if this is true for organizations, isn't it true for people? And if you want to know uh, what really makes and motivates people, don't look at what they say their priorities are. Uh, look at how they spend their time. He, he once gave an example uh, of class reunions at the Harvard Business School. And he said, these, you know, people would come back 10, 15, 20 years, you know, after graduating. And, and Clay would say, you know, No one left the Harvard Business School as a student with a goal that in 10 years, I'm going to be work-obsessed, and in 15 years, I'm going to be divorced, and in 20 years, I'm going to be estranged from my children. No one would ever say, that's my strategy. But he he would say, look at how they allocate their time and attention. And working on a speech at work or writing a presentation for the office, it gave... A lot of those you know, students a sense of fulfillment and meaning in the short term. And he said, but children and family and faith and service to others, sometimes the rewards for those things, they only come in the long term. And if you can't build your own internal resource allocation around those decisions, you're going to be taken to a strategy you would never say is your strategy. But your resource allocation process as an individual person is shaped by that. I, I loved, love Clay's teaching on that. Um, it changed and shaped my life. I, re- I remember Clay once told the story when he worked at Boston Consulting Group. His boss said to him one day, um, Clay, we, we we're all so busy. So we decided we're going to have our team meeting either Saturday morning or Sunday morning. And, and Clay said to him, uh, "I promised long ago Saturday to my wife and Sunday to God. And if you want to get those days back, you can ask either one of them for their permission." <laughs> and, <laughs> and and he lived that. And be, um, it would so, be
0: easier to ask God, I think.
1: <laughs> well, Clay's Clay's wife Christine is is a key to his life success and. They were unified in, in a resource allocation priorities around their family, around their children, around their marriage, around their faith, and, uh, around service to others. And, and so Clay taught that. He modeled it. And, and I think that's why the book, How Will You Measure Your Life, impacted so many people at the Harvard Business School and around the world who said there's got to be something more than just making a higher income. I didn't tell you this, but I,
0: discuss, I we discussed, discussed How Will You Measure Your Life with Karen Dillon. She's a future yeah. guest on, yeah. on this series as well. Yeah. A, a friend of yours, I'm sure, and, and yeah. you've collaborated together in the past. Wonderful lady and such a great person. But I was telling her that... It's why I'm doing this series. It's why I think this work needs to be spread and people need to hear it. And, and it's in risk of not being done so. And I, I thought that's why I wanted to bring it all together and let people know the entire journey. For me, I remember going on holidays with my family and I decided I'm going to, I'm going to read that book that's been sitting on my bedside locker. And it was, How Will You Measure Your Life? And I remember bringing it on on holiday and in between work emails, and my young children trying to spend some time with them i managed to grab a couple of chapters here and there and gradually it took over my holiday and it absolutely changed my life because i realized all those things that i was neglecting my health i was neglecting my wife i was neglecting my family and all in this idea i was stuck in this bubble of well i'm working hard to provide for them but in doing that in doing that i wasn't present in any way and resource allocation was key to that i'm saying all that to say you've also changed the resource allocation of your own life as well you've recalibrated like i mentioned there and maybe we'll share what you've decided to do with your resources
1: well i'm glad you asked that and and by the way clay was a big part of that decision i i was you know i was clay's protege i was um you know, his doctoral student, we thought alike, we taught similar principles. And um, and I loved being a member of the Harvard Business School faculty. And um, Kim Clark, who had been the dean, left to go to BYU-Idaho. And he asked me, Clark, I'd like you to come serve in the church, serve this university, because we're going to rethink the way education is delivered around the world. And and that eventually led to the creation of BYU pathway and hundreds of thousands of students all around the world, first generation students, low income students, students in Africa, students in the Philippines. And, and, and none of that was there when I left. You know, it was, it was an invitation to come help create that. But boy, I loved the trappings of the Harvard Business School. I loved, I loved where I taught. I loved the income and, and the board seats I was on and the, and the prestige of the, of the HBS shield and everything associated with that. And, you know, I said to my wife one night, I feel like the rich young ruler in Christ's parable uh, who was asked to sell all and follow the, Jesus Christ. And I said, I've got this opportunity to do that. Um, and I know we're going to say yes, (laughs) because I know how the parable ends and, but it it wasn't the most Christian motivation early on. I was sad to leave and, um, and it was hard. I had to tell colleagues I was leaving my career at the Harvard Business School to go serve with in the church. And, um, but, but I learned from Clay, you know, what is the most important thing? And that opportunity came to, to serve other people, serve, uh, less privileged, uh, use innovation as well as inspiration to reach people who we weren't reaching, who needed access to an education. And so, um, yeah, I left, I left the Harvard Business School in 2006 and I joined Kim Clark there, uh, in his, uh, administration. Um, I was there, uh, for several years, uh, helping cre- create online and, and what became the BYU pathway program for lower income students all around the world. Um, and, and that, but that started a path by learning to say, no, that is what's most important to me. Not the trappings of career, not the, uh, attraction of income and wealth, but, but serving god and, and making a difference in other people's lives and that that took me from the harvard business school and and you know and then the church asked me to run its media companies later i became the president of byu idaho and later byu pathway and then just in the last 2 years the church asked me to serve a, in a role what we call a general authority it's a full-time ministerial role and i'm i'm a full-time minister in our church now uh, I have responsibility for the church's global educational efforts, but my first responsibility is really to be a witness of Jesus Christ and to invite people to follow Him. And that that decision was laid years ago when I left the Harvard Business School, and and that decision was influenced by my dear friend Clay Christensen. I I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have been here without a lot of people, without my wife, certainly without God. But the influence Clay had on me as a young scholar, uh, not only in my thinking and in my research, but in who I would become. It all came from Clay. I
0: thought about your own path that you've taken, and I kind of mapped it to the dual transformation map because (laughs) A A was your Harvard business work. And B was your or your, your new entity that you're in now, and I then I thought about the capabilities link, which is your your transferable skills of oration and innovation and thinking and strategic thinking, etc., and that regeneration that you're capable of, and it, it maps beautifully to the idea of dual transformation as well in the infinity curve. I, I absolutely love the way that works together, and I thought we'd use that as a segue to to talk about it because one of the things you said there was it, it was difficult to leave that world that you knew so well. And in a way, it mirrors what happens in organizations. It, it's difficult for a leadership team to let go of that past in order to embrace the future because it was comfortable and it was what you knew and it was what you were good at. And I think it's a nice way to set us up for what we're going to talk about in your strategic
1: work. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. Well, you're absolutely right. You said it was comfortable, and and it it was what I was good at. And another word I add is it was familiar. Um, and um, you know, when we when we try to do something new and innovative, uh, sometimes we have to let go of those things. But but I do believe, Aiden, e- even in my own personal story, you know, and and I've never thought of transformation A and transformation B in in light of my own life choices. But, um, I think you're right. And what's interesting to me is, as you talked, I didn't, I felt like I left my career behind and everything I'd done, but I actually found that, you know, God used them in a different place. You know, I can make use innovation theory to help corporations make more money. Or I could use innovation theory to help serve the poor. And, um, but, but I actually brought with me some of those things I learned and I just had to learn to how to apply them in a new context and, and with a framework that included God in it. But, but, you know, C.S. Lewis, you know, who, you know, just up the way from you at Oxford, you know, wrote a wonderful essay called Learning in Wartime and and there was this question right before, it was on the eve of World War II. Hitler was on the march. Should we go to college? Or shouldn't we all just sign up for the war effort because we knew we would have to fight this demagogue? And, um, and C.S. Lewis never fully answered that question, but he said, wait a second. If life is a battle between good and evil, always, why do any of us become scholars and attorneys and doctors. And shouldn't we all go into the ministry? You know, here I am at age 50, I become a full-time minister, but, you know, shouldn't I have been doing that my whole life if I really was a believer? And and C.S. Lewis says, no, 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 wait a second. God wants you to be a scholar, to be a, 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 a plumber, an attorney, a doctor. But if you make your intent to glorify him, he will let you, he will let, he will magnify your talents, whatever you do, you know, and, and I think that was true of Clay. I hope that's true of me, Aiden. but, but I realized now the things I did as a strategy consultant and as a a board member, as a Harvard Business School faculty member, God's using those things today for his purposes, but, 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 I hope he was using him when I was back in those other roles too. And so, um, it is hard. It is hard to let go. And whether, whether you're making a personal life change, like we talk about in how will you measure your life or, or whether you're a newspaper company trying to let go of print media and, and going to digital distribution, it, it's hard because it's unfamiliar. It's hard because it's not what you're good at. Um, it's hard because it's new, but there is something more fundamental, and, and we should talk about this. And this is what Clay identified in his research. There's something about the way we allocate our time, attention, resources that makes it even harder. Like, it's, it's always hard to do something new, but if it's what you're already doing, and it, this is what Clay would call a sustaining innovation Good companies figure it out. What made it hard for disruptive innovations is not only was it difficult and new and cutting edge and innovative, but its very logic defied the way you allocated time and attention. And so actually the best companies were were the least capable of making it through these changes. That that was the insight Clay had. It, in fact, the best news organizations I worked with. The harder it was for them to go from print media to the digital world, and you know that that and Clay would would say it was because they were smart, it was because they were capable, but the, and they had built rules inside of the org- organization that allocated time, attention, resources to the things that made them better and better on a sustaining innovation curve. But a disruptive curve always looked inferior. And so in addition to it being new, you had to learn how to value something that looked unattractive. I, I had to do that at the Deseret News. And frankly, I had to do that with online learning to serve all of these other students. Most universities only want to serve the wealthy and the brilliant. But, but how can we use education to lower costs and make it available to everyone, and that wasn't hard just because it was an innovation problem, but it was hard because it disrupted the very allocation rules, resource allocation rules of time and attention, that Clay and Joe Bauer have talked so much about. And it's so
0: human, uh, like so much of this. <laughs> we we talk about strategy, and the strategy is almost the easy part, the mechanics. It's the humanics. It's the human touch that's so difficult and it's a lovely segue maybe to share some of your work on the Deseret as well because it was a magnificent turnaround and I'm going to infuse in there because I can't resist a a great article you wrote so I have a couple of quotes here maybe and you just unpack them so the first is by Christensen Bauer in 1996 response to strategic change is at the heart of firm sustainability In the case of disruptive technology, previous research shows that firms historically fail to commit resources because proposals do not fit the criteria considered in the existing resource allocation process. That speaks to what you just mentioned. That's one thing. But I also wanted to then join that together with a brilliant quote from a paper you wrote for the HBR in 2005 called Unbundling the Structure of Inertia, resource versus routine rigidity. Beautiful title. And in the article, you work to unbundle the structure of inertia into two distinct categories, resource rigidity, and routine rigidity. And you say, given this continuous change, a researcher's failure to recognize these distinctions can generate conflicting findings regarding effects of threat perception on inertia. Using field data on the response of newspaper organizations to the rise of digital media, you show that a strong perception of threat helps overcome resource rigidity, but simultaneously amplifies routine rigidity. In the paper, you develop an interpretive model exploring mechanisms for overcoming these divergent behaviors. I love
1: that talk. And I love how you frame that. Maybe you'll unpack that a little for us. Thanks, Aiden, And, and I'm glad you like it, because as I listen to my own words, I sound far too much like an academic. So uh, <laughs> let, let, me, let me come at that for some of your audience. Uh, when I was studying this phenomenon, it was very clear that there were conflicting literatures in the psychology literature. Some people said when we're under attack, we lock in and we, and we become inflexible. And other people said, no, 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 we have lots of data that shows when you're under attack, you actually become risk seeking. And, and I said, how can these, how can these two very smart, thoughtful, scholarly groups have found such different things? And what, what we found is the ones who said you, you hunkered down and locked in, we're looking at kind of the structure of your behavior and the routines you put into place. The ones who said you became risk-seeking were looking at whether you were willing to invest or not invest. And, and when Clay wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, he was mostly looking at this invest or not invest. Um, all of these great organizations would say, why would I ever invest in the disruption? It's unattractive, our customers don't want it, it underperforms on our traditional metrics. Why would we invest in that? And 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 so that was kind of resource rigidity. But we were seeing with the internet, newspaper companies were panicked. Everyone was telling you every day when you came into the office, you're you're a dinosaur, your company's gonna die, you know, you know, your business is over. So they knew it was coming. And they were in, willing to invest billions, literally. So the, the routine rigidity was overcome. Or sorry, the, the resource rigidity was overcome. They spent money because they knew they were they were in trouble. They were panicked. But they never changed their behaviors. And the underlying routines of what they did, it was basically a printed newspaper published online. They didn't take advantage of any of the new forms of the media, the way the media could be shared, involving community participation in the engagement, because it violated the routines of traditional news organizations. And And I remember I was in a, uh, in a doctoral seminar with Clay, and we were reading these literatures, and it hit me like a eureka moment. I literally stood up, Aiden, in my chair, and I said, okay, I may not be the smartest Student in this doctoral program. But once I had that insight, I knew any idiot from that point on could, could do something with that, with that insight. And, and I realized, okay, routine rigidity is different than resource rigidity. You can scare someone into acting, but you can't get them to change their behaviors without a fundamental redesign of their organization. You know, and, and by the way, I saw this when I served in, when I left Harvard Business School and I went to work in the church's educational system. We knew BYU is our flagship school. It's amazing. You know, national merit scholars, you know, the, the number three or four, uh, highest producing PhD, uh, undergraduate sourcing at school in the country, you know, uh, high GPAs and, but we knew we the church was broader than that. We had to be able to educate the common man and do it in ways that were powerful. And so we we knew we could do that, but we couldn't get BYU to change its culture to serve the everyday kids. And And so the leader of our church overcame both resource rigidity by creating BYU-Idaho, but he changed the routines by putting it on top of a community college. So instead of trying to get BYU to do it, he said, we're going to invest in our community college. We'll make it a four-year school. We'll put the resources into it. But then because it's a community college, it's teaching focused. And, and frankly, our church leadership gave it a student emphasis, no research, no college athletics um a year round calendar and you know and the pro- president of the church in one announcement overcame the dilemma that failed caused companies to fail in, in every industry we had studied and here i saw a religious organization overcoming the innovator's dilemma because it leaned into a spiritual identity and it was a miracle it, in the BYU Idaho served the everyday kid lowered cost in, in from 2000 when it was created to 2020 we tripled the enrollment from 10,000 to over 30,000 students and in inflation adjusted dollars the cost went down and you and so you'd say oh we've now created clay in fact clay christensen wrote with henry j iring a, a bio of they called it the innovative university and when i became the president of BYU Idaho everyone said oh i hear you guys are so innovative but but then when we looked to take uh, BYU Idaho and serve even a lower income student kids in west africa and in the philippines and in central america suddenly the resource allocation process that was our friend in creating a student-focused campus university became our enemy when we said we're going to do it online. We're going to start with certificates and just get kids good entry-level jobs. It was hard to do it there. And once again, not me, not Kim Clark, but the Church of Jesus Christ used their religious identity to help us overcome the innovator's dilemma. And we took BYU Pathway not only did we set it up separately, but we spun it out of the university. And, and today, 70,000 students around the world. It's now bigger than BYU and BYU Idaho. And it's because we overcame the resource allocation process, solving both resource rigidity and routine rigidity by creating a new organization. And so it's really rare. I, I you know, I spent so much of my life studying this phenomenon but I've had two chances to put it into practice, both in the media companies and in higher education. And and, and and I did have the advantage of having a religious mission to motivate our efforts. If you take
0: that as a template and then you apply it to what you did in Deseret, it's, ex, it's exactly the same thing. And it worked, even the whole idea of, well, you have to have a separate entity. And this is a real challenge. and And even... I've read a lot on innovation and I'm kind of going, can you not have it in tie- inside the same organization? But because of that resource versus routine rigidity, it shows you why you can't. And you, you mentioned there about how you had this eureka moment and you stood up and you're like, any, any idiot can get this. Any idiot might be able to get it, but can any idiot put it into practice because you had magnificent results. I'm going to share on the screen the revenue fortunes that the reallocation of revenue towards digital that happened under Clark's stewardship. But I wanted to map it as you did to the three phases of Clay Christensen's disruptive innovation model, and it maps perfectly to these three phases. And it doesn't matter if it's the newspaper industry, this works for any industry, phase one, there's simultaneous and parallel growth for both the legacy and the new organisation. In phase two, there's uncertainty for legacy organization, the revenues start to shrink, for example, and then phase three, the final surge comes as the legacy industry gets initially a growth phase, but then a steady decline. We see these curves all the time, this certain spurt of growth as it lets go of maybe declining costs, cost cuts, and then this, the decline starts and just goes on and on until the new entity takes over, hopefully, if you've prepared one,
1: Aiden. this pattern shows up over and over and over again. In fact, Clay used to say, theory gets a bad name, because it sounds theory, theoretical and esoteric. But a good theory lets you predict in the absence of data ahead of time. And you you can see this pattern over and over and over again and so in this first period uh, it's really hard to commit resources to the new venture the disruptive venture because the traditional business is still thriving even growing and so that first phase you described uh, we call that a crisis of commitment that early on how do you commit resources when nothing looks like it's wrong in the core business Right. And, and then the second one, uh, second period is there's some ambiguity. Like, is online really going to be the future? And can't we hold on to the print business? Or is online learning going to be the future? Can't we hold on to the campus? And, um, and, and there, uh, you, you see the legacy leadership, uh, in an organization actually, uh, fight. The new venture and i call this the crisis of conflict um because in this phase you'll have people really attacking what you're doing um and so early on it's like how do i get the legitimacy to get resources that's a crisis of conflict then once you get the resources many people in the incumbent or leadership will say i got to destroy this it's this is terrible it's taking resources away from our old core business, uh, and they they will try to sabotage it. And that's a crisis of conflict. Over time, it's clear that the disruption is going to become the dominant way people consume in the future. You know, today, BYU Pathway is as big as our two flagship universities combined. You know, early on in the crisis of, of uh, commitment, we couldn't get any funding to it. Then in the crisis of conflict, you had traditional faculty who were aligned with us on the mission, but they looked down at it and and almost tried to undermine it. And today, it's clear. We know BYU Pathway is going to be the major catalyst to providing education all around the world to members of our faith. 70,000 students. It's going to grow and grow and grow. We'll have half a million students in this. But now it's a crisis of identity. What do you do when your online learners are not just bigger, but a multiple the size of your legacy campuses? What do you do when your online website at the Deseret News isn't just as big as the newspaper circulation, but it's a multiple uh, the size of the legacy business? And so in each one of these crises, there needs to be leadership. In the crisis of convent commitment a leader needs to step in and say we are funding this even though it's new and different for us that was a prophet of our church came in and said we're going to fund byu idaho and then later we're going to fund byu pathway that's how one way to overcome the crisis commitment is great leadership stepping in and saying i know other people don't want to do this but it's the future and then in the crisis of conflict the leader needs to step in and separate his, you know, fighting, arguing siblings and, and get, get them apart. That's why you need a new organization is otherwise the incumbent organization will crush it. And then in that last crisis of identity, what do you do now when the new venture is bigger, multiples bigger than, than the legacy assets? And, and so, it really requires leadership all the way through this. You don't, you can't just set up a new organization, which you have to do. We talk about that, but you need leadership all the way through it. And, and it's been what people will often ask me. Well, is what you did at the Desert News and at, in the church's educational system replicable to secular organizations? And, and without, without a doubt, our religious identity, our religious mission, helped the leaders do that. But, but I tell people everywhere, amplify your organization's mission, even if it's not religious. You know, if, if you're a media organization or you're a healthcare organization, what is your mission? And use that to help the leadership narrative as you work through these challenges. And just for our audience as well, there's in dual transformation
0: there's examples in there from Netflix, from Adobe, from Xerox, Singtel, many examples of organizations who navigated that change mapped to the dual transformation framework. Clark, I thought we'd share that at a high level the dual transformation framework where you have transformation A, B, and then the really important aspect you talk about there, the kind of refereeing of capabilities and managing of capabilities in between both. And maybe we'll map that to your your time in Deseret as well. One of the, maybe maybe you'll take us through that at a high level. And then just before you go on to Transformation A, I read once, and I can't find it anywhere. I'd love you to share this. You give a great metaphor of how crocodiles survived because they became smaller and smaller and
1: more agile as the environment changed, and that's why they're still around. Yes, uh, thank you. I love I love that metaphor, and I use it all the time because um, people say you're a dinosaur. Um, what they don't realize is the crocodiles were around at the time of the dinosaurs, and they are bigger and they lived in different places. But they adapted by becoming smaller, and 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 li- now they live in the mouth of riverbeds. Uh, and, uh, going out to the ocean and they, they found this place where they can survive. And, um, you know, Clay's original work was, okay, the incumbents lose and the startups win, right? But, but no one wants to say, well, give up. (laughs) And, um, how, how do I, can I preserve the legacy business? Can I preserve the legacy organization? And, you know, I, I think I was really aided in that effort, uh, Aiden, when I got to um, both my higher education role and my uh, media roles, because my board in both cases wanted a viable legacy business. So, you know, the the leader of our church had, had run the Deseret News, and he's like, how will we keep the printed product viable? And... We had to figure out, okay, people aren't going to subscribe to a daily newspaper. And, and we adapted it and we went to a weekly paper. We did a national once a week paper. Uh, and the team after I left created Deseret Magazine, you know, and, and, but they said we're going to embrace coverage of family and faith and poverty, things that the church really cared about and we could do distinctly well. And so this is like the crocodile saying, I'm going to adapt and do just what I can do and find a place where that's viable. Um, Obviously, our campuses, even in a world of online learning, both uh, our campus in uh, BYU-Idaho, our campus in BYU, they have record enrollment on the campus, right? And so we weren't going to walk away from those assets. And so Dual Transformation said, hey, I got to lead an innovative change not only to create the new disruptive venture, but I gotta lead in, I gotta be a leader to preserve the viability of the legacy venture. And as I would talk to executives around the world, I would say, look, you're not leading one transformation, you're leading two. You gotta have a really innovative change process to preserve the core and you got to have a separate and independent process to launch the new and there would be some linking between them through the capabilities exchange but um but but you're going to bleed two different change processes and and Aiden I did not do this perfectly I made all all kinds of mistakes I would I would get up to the faculty at BYU Idaho and go on and on and on about online learning and pathway <laughs> and that only made them feel less secure about their core efforts. And and I would get up in front of the Deseret News team and I'd go on and on and on about how we're winning the digital war, not only against our local competition, but but even becoming a national voice, but they didn't feel part of that. And so I had to build narratives and, and even in authentic insight of how will the printed paper become a real viable thing and how will it become, a survivable alligator or a crocodile in the future. And, and, and I, and I love the campuses of our universities and what happens there and how it transforms the lives of our students. And I had to make sure I knew that narrative and I invested in that effort. And so I, I made a lot of mistakes, Aiden. It, it, it wasn't that I wrote about this and published about it. And then suddenly magically it all worked. I made mistakes, I had, a, I had a board who worked with me and helped me grow and develop, and I had teams that helped me learn how to do this, but over time I realized I'm leading two change processes, not one, and an individual can go back and forth between the two, but organizations are far less flexible, and um, boy, have I learned a lot from those experiences so there's a transformation a
0: which is the legacy organization b is the future and then c is the capabilities link another metaphor that is really useful was the airlock so as you're going between each you have to kind of change your suit and change your clothing in order to go into this one so you're not bringing over even mindsets from that organization or speaking the language of that organization to this language like
1: like you said because you alienate them well you know it, it's really hard to find someone who can live in the in that in between space and you know take take BYU pathway which is transformation B it's the new model new way of going we serve we call them the hidden many uh, operating everywhere the church is organized and and in transformation A it's you know we bring them to a campus and and the curriculum's different the the operating model is different. The, the way you interact with students is different. But I do need the accreditation of Transformation A. And so we've built a little team that lives inside a C. And, and they know the difference between the two institutions. And they respect it. Uh, and, that, and that's a u- th- unique thing. People have a hard time respecting two things that are simultaneously different. But we found a group who can and they they go in and they seal the chamber, lock out the culture from either organization, work together, exchange curriculum, ideas, uh, accreditation, student service information, and then they o- open it back up and go into their separate organizations. And and really for us, Aiden, I don't think we could have done this without a deep sense of mission. And this, I mentioned this earlier. For us, it's a religious mission, but, but even for our friends in other organizations, it's like, why, you know, if you're doing this kind of innovation in a hospital system, um, if you're doing it in a media organization and you can help people realize this will help us serve more people and the different models, they are different. But if we can embrace a common mission to lift and build others, you know, and and for us that's deeply religious. But secular organizations can be motivated by a sense of mission as well. If if it's just money making, it is it is a lot harder. You know, but I find organizations with not only deep uh, strategies but deep missions they can do this, and that that's aided me uh, in higher education and in the media's the mission for and is what motivated. People in the end to work together in these difficult navigation spaces. Beautiful, Clark. I'm I'm conscious of your time. I thought maybe we'd finish with I I
0: picked out of all the the writings and literature that I've read to prepare for today two quotes, and one is on your work, and one is on Clay. Then to finish today's episode, so maybe I'll, I'll tee you up for your work because one of the things you say is this no matter how well you prepare no matter how much you do it just like when when you said about the the church you love your you love the physical the bricks the university but you have to kind of let it go a little bit just like you did with Harvard yeah. when you went then to work for the church as well yeah. there's a there's a a melancholy there and the quote i picked here is you say in dual transformation While disruption is the greatest opportunity a leadership team will ever face, the same disruption that frequently rips an incumbent apart almost always results in net market growth. It is the moment when the market also ran can become the market leader. It is the moment when business legacies are created. I love that.
1: Well, I look at what's happened here in my experience with higher education and with media and um, this legacy moment in both cases wasn't just because myself and kim clark and um david bednar who had been the president before us were involved but it's because we really did have spiritual mission-based leadership that said there's something more and you use the word net growth You know, today, the Deseret News reaches about 10 times as many people as it reached with its peak print circulation. Today, our church reaches, through higher education, you know, I, I pointed these numbers out, but, you know, more students through BYU Pathway than our leading flagship universities combined on their campuses. And... You know, and, and we needed that. The church need, we need in media, we needed a voice in a world that's secular and doesn't look at these things, uh, through faith-based lenses. The Desert News is now a national voice, all, read all over the world by millions of people. And that wouldn't have happened with a print newspaper in, in greater Salt Lake, right? And, and, and today, of course, how, how could a church That claim to be motivated by the principles of, uh, Jesus Christ only provide education to elite, wealthy, uh, brilliant people and not serve its whole worldwide presence. And, and now everywhere we, everywhere we go in our church, no matter where it is, India, Africa, South America, or a poor family in Salt Lake or a single mother going back to finish her education. No matter where you are in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, you have access to a high quality, affordable, spiritually based education. You know, the, the, the innovative arc for us was fundamentally grounded in that mission. And, and I just, it's been one of the joys of my life to be able to take some of these insights from clay and others that i love and i believed in but infuse them with deeper purpose uh and bless many more people than we could have if we would have stayed in a traditional paradigm beautiful
0: beautiful claire and and i just want to say for anybody who isn't spiritually minded and is more about the organization and organization's an organization. So yeah.
1: use those same principles and apply them to business if you want, because they work. I believe that. I, I have a spiritual calling now, but these principles are true across organizational settings and it works across industries and um and I think that's why the power of Clay's insights were that he found something that worked and it and it resonates. True principles work regardless of where they're applied.
0: Beautiful, and on Clay, I picked a quote that I thought you might want to finish today's show because this was the real reason you really wanted to do today's show. I kind of squeezed out some of your insights, some of your business (laughs) insights and organizational change insights. Mm -hmm. You said in your article, how can we measure the life of Clay Christensen? Certainly the impact on his intellectual and academic portfolio will be felt for generations to come. But for me and so many who knew him, the impact of Clay's life comes from the goodness and desire he has always had to serve God and lift others. The world has lost a great light in Clayton Christensen's passing, but his ideas and example will continue to bless so many in powerful and lasting ways.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. Well, I, I feel it. I, he, Clay lives in my thinking, uh, but more importantly, in my heart. I learned I learned more about how to serve others uh, and be someone who had integrity uh, to deeper values from Clay. As much as he's influenced my intellectual development, uh, his greatest and most lasting impact on me has been in the formation of my character, obviously my religious belief my integrity to things like my family my faith and how to be invested in the lives of other people and in the end i think that is clay's lasting legacy and i am so grateful for it and i'm pleased you're doing this session and that Aiden you would understand as powerful as clay's ideas are there's there's so much to this man that will live on because of his character and I'm glad you could cover both of those uh, in these podcasts.
0: And um, thank you. I'm grateful to you for giving up your time. I know it's very precious now that you measure it differently and you, you allocate <laughs> it very, very differently. And it is exactly why I wanted to do this series to honor the work and make sure that it lasts well beyond any of us Upload it to YouTube and let it live there forever. It was an absolute pleasure. And I appreciate your time so much. Clark Gilbert, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Aiden. As always, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate. Next Estate are specialists in buying, selling, and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Next Estate at
1: next-estate.com or next-estate.de.